Now it is response to St. John. It seems to me that the most consistently used word to evade coming to grips with some of the questions I posed was the word irrelevant. It was used 11 times in five minutes. Mr. Childs began by saying he's not a debater, and then he used the oldest debating trick in the world, ridicule to evade answering an idea. History is irrelevant, hmm? History is irrelevant to ideas. Then how, pray tell, do you judge theoretical ideas? I thought this was my, uh, was my, I was going to do my thing, and I need to do, all right, fine. I just, you know, see, already we haven't even got to an anarchist state, and already wants to break the rules that we're set down. Which, in a, a very selective, admitted way, I am suspect of anarchism. It's quite true what Mr. Child says, that anarchism, uh, that the state has been a bloody monster. But let me remind Mr. Child that the people who paved the way for the all-powerful state, at least in the last 150 years, were in particular revolutionaries and anarchists. So if we're going to talk about the creation of the all-powerful state, let's also talk about the ideas which brought that all-powerful state into being. I object very, very strenuously and am kind of morally indignant to somehow equating objectivism with yes. Now that is irrelevant. And it is irrelevant simply the fact that Miss Rand and the objectivists have consistently taken a moral and philosophical stand on the abolition of the draft. This is not an objectivist society. I wish it were. The question is to discuss the ideas which make for a objective society as opposed to a society ruled by whim. Now, all governments are limited. Ask Tanevsky and Daniel and, and uh, the 40 million people uh, of how unlimited the Stalinist uh, terror was. If that's, if, that's unlimited, if that's limited government, then tell me what is unlimited government. Constitutions are only as good as the men who create them. It is only as good as the individuals who think in principle. Because men violate the Constitution, Mr. Childs makes mention of the fact that, well, the 13th Amendment has clause to uh, involuntary servitude. Just because men do not live up to stated principles doesn't necessarily mean that the concept is wrong. It simply means that some people don't think in principle. Rebuttal. He can see most of my points in terms of the area as far as the history of anarchy. By, it's a kind of passage, yes, that's true, but in his paper, he emphatically says to us, his paper on the epistemological basis of anarchism, an open letter to objectivists and libertarians, he concedes, he uses as the basis, Godwin, who he admits was both an individualist and a collectivist, and essentially that's one of the problems of anarchy is that there is this flux and flow between individualism and collectivism. And that's why I tend to be uh, more inclined toward objectivism than I am towards anarchy and limited government. Now here, let's get something very straight right now. Who in, he who in the hell ever said that Ayn Rand was a political theorist? She preceded the, she is the parent of politics 
And everybody in this room is a demonstration of that. You've all been profoundly influenced by Ayn Rand. The new left is down in the hall. The parent of politics is philosophy. Ayn Rand is not a political theorist. He's a philosopher. He grants the point that yes, it's quite true, there are problems with the issue of competing defense agencies. But we'll work that out. Well, I suggest that we start basically with ideas and not with debating points. Thank you. Thank you. We will now take some questions from the floor. constitutional uh, government. Just because some men don't live up to the principles of constitution doesn't necessarily mean that the theory is wrong. And to say that uh, limited or uh, any kind of government, uh, that it had limited government, uh, and that the well-meaning uh, of the founders, you have to remember something, uh, which I think is, is overlooked. The creation of the, of the concept of our, of our particular type of uh, Republican form of government, uh, Murray Rothbard and others, seem to call it a democracy, and it's, not a, it's still a representative Republican theory. We're moving toward that despotic state of, of, of a pure democracy by reason of a number of things. But my point is that you certainly know, sir, that at the time of the American Revolution, we were going through a transition period. Remember that the economic system of this country was basically dominated by mercantilism. The revolution essentially was a bridge for free trade. Now, philosophically and intellectually, the mixed kind of ideas that were fermenting at the time of the American Revolution accounts for the contradictions, the commerce clauses that exist in the Constitution. Now, I suggest that we know more, we understand more, we have a larger body of knowledge and science, and particularly in terms of the last 200 years of the nature of government, which to postulate a new, a, a new philosophical and political renaissance. And to say that because it failed then, that this must immediately uh, we must abjure the idea of limited government is, is to not basically come to grips, I think, with, with the issue of conflict that's being presented here. That is that objective moral government, in my view, is possible. And that the alternative postulated by Mr. Child Anarchism is to ensure no right, and possibly to ensure just the opposite of what certainly he would, wanted, he would desire. I'll just respond in, in one aspect. Um, I think that history is irrelevant in this sense, too. I think that 
Well, see, I'm, I'm sort of defending you because he's using the same kind of argument against you that you did no, against no, me. I defend myself. I know. But, but history is irrelevant in this sense. History can show you what can happen. It can show you what man has done, but not what he, he can do if he sets his mind to it. In other words, history can give you illustrations, but it cannot by itself prove that any doctrine can or cannot work, so on and so forth. I am saying, I, this is true, I think, of limited I think it can't work for other reasons than historical, although I think your points are correct. I think it's also true of, of the doctrine of anarcho-capitalism, and I don't like being linked up with other, other anarchists who, who maybe threw a bomb and maybe did not. I don't know. But I'm saying that that kind of argument is not a philosophical argument. Uh, just, just very briefly, I, I think, uh, in deference to Mr. Giles and to respective positions here in the auditorium, that we have to keep one thing in mind, a very crucial thing, that we are talking about theoretical philosophical principles. And the vote is still out. That is to say, nowhere in the history has an anarchist society succeeded, nor has a limited government society succeeded uh, what we would ideally like. And it is important to keep that perspective, I think, in mind. That we are, and, and the real conflict seems to me, and the real acid test, is how the tests that we apply to these particular uh, contributes. Logic, reason, but history is not irrelevant. It's an important, important mirror which guide can guide can help guide men's action. Mr. Rothbard? I don't understand, Mer uh, Dr. Rothbard, how, how I could possibly answer a theoretical question with a theoretical answer. Iffy questions are just that, they're iffy. Since I don't believe in the idea of competing defense agency, why should I even bother to answer the question? What if one happened to pop up? No, no, what? I got, <laughs> if one happened to pop up. Well, I'll tell you something. If one did happen to pop up, I would probably go to a monastery in Tibet. same problem as you had in the American Revolution. Remember the serfs, by the time the revolution had not been free yet a hundred years. That's the first point. The second point is that the peasants had not little, they, they joined ultimately in the revolt. But you remember there was a period from the time of Alexander I until Nicholas uh, II of a long period of intellectual ferment. Lenin's brother was involved in the assassination attempt of, uh, I think, what was it, the third, uh, Alexander II. Uh, there was this long period of, of student intellectual unrest. Now, I suggest, and here I have to agree with the, a democratic socialist by the name of Louis, Louis Foyer, maybe some of you have read his book, Conflict of Generations, in which he points out 
the indispensable role that intellectuals and intellectual ideas played as the precursor. We know why Nazism came Nazi into Germany. It had nothing to do with the masses. It happened to do with the long string of philosophical schools that had permeated, going back to Kant and Hegel. And so I would suggest that, that your, your question is that uh, what, what is really at stake here is the examination of the ideas that led to these tragic consequences, not only for the peasants, because we know what, uh, what Lenin's betrayal, program of betrayal. suggesting is that in the crucial area of initiation of force, I'm not going to concede the idea that, that anarchism can fulfill that responsibility. We're talking about a, a specifically limited government. I think Miss Rand, in what political writings that she has engaged in, the nature of government, as, as one particular uh, article, has specifically defined what she thought would be in terms of courtly succession, but certainly nothing approximating a, uh, a monopoly on anything. Let, let leave people alone. But there is a certain degree, which, uh, not degree, but a certain uh, structure, a legal code one, I think, ne needs to have. And I don't think it can be found in the kind of, of, of anarchist situation. Um, your, your basic claim is that I, and presumably other anarcho-capitalists, place government services in the same arena as other goods and services. My answer is in one respect, yes, and another, no. First of all, the, the respect in which they're not is the same. Other goods and services, when you have an exchange in the free market, both parties can exchange are willing. That is, both, both parties are go along with the deal. If I exchange $5 for a pair of shoes at your side. In the case of the defense retaliation, the criminal doesn't consent, so it's different in that respect. But what we have to focus on here is the moral issue. Is defense and retaliation, when guided by objective moral principles, moral, that is legitimate, or not? If it is, then my claim is that other agencies, in addition to government, can perform these actions without the government being justified and using force to stop them. I'm saying at the same time that if these things are not moral, if these are not legitimate, then the government could not exist at all. My basic argument, then, is that, is that they are in the same arena in one respect. And that, that's with respect to the key issue of morality. Just as my exchanging $5, if it's my $5 for your shoes, if they're your shoes, is a moral action, so is my acting to recover the money if you stole it from me. If that action is moral, then they are alike in that respect, and that's what you have to focus on. Can the government prohibit, by these force, other agencies from acting as defenders and protectors of man's rights and from retaliating against criminals or not? I think that if the government does, it's initiated force, hence limited government in Mr. St. John's sense, the conviction in terms. If it does not, it ceases being a final authority, in which case it's no longer a government by Ms. Rand's definition. Would you speak down, uh, 
You got two hours? Which, which are you talking about then?
Mr. Things on the right when he says that a constitution is just as good as the men who make it and who enforce it. I also agree that men have certain inalienable rights as individuals, not as members of a group, and therefore they can delegate these two agencies and that there is no reason why they should be prevented from patronizing more than one such agency that is delegating their rights, more than one such agency within a given geographical area. If they are prevented, then I think it's tantamount to saying that they don't really have these rights in the first place, that they're really permissioned. But then the question is, who's permissioned? Okay. I was wondering if on this issue uh, the two parties would care to go another round on it. It seems to me that the, that the conflict here is essentially in that, in, as I understand Ms. Rand's basic ideas about limited government, and as I hold them, is that in such a condition, a, uh, not only would it not be necessary, but no other agency would be allowed to have a monopoly on, uh, on physical force. I think that essentially is the basic inherent nature of a limited form of government. And therefore, I think it would be, it would be a conflict between what Mr. Childs is postulating. He's postulating, in, in other words, he's not accepting or at least examining the fact of the nature of an objectivist government. And of course, he has been talking in the context of saying that this, of course, and he's been saying it not on the kind of absurd government and irrationality we have today, but in terms of his disagreement with what he sees as the basic uh, principles underlying the objectivist belief, uh, belief in limited government. And I would say that if, and I will get theoretical now, if by reason of a magic of Maryland, what you talked about in terms of the things are getting just more irrationally state. Let's assume for a moment, uh, I don't like working on theoretical kind of dubious assumptions, but let us assume for a moment that, that this was a different world, that the climate, that objectivist government did exist. It would seem to me that uh, Mr. Child's desire to go off and have his own uh, whatever would be fine. But in a, but we got to remember a specific area which deals with the, what is essentially police power. That's essentially what we're talking about. We're not talking about services and goods and everything. We are talking essentially about the police power in dealing with, with, the, with specific acts uh, which violate a particular agreed upon constitution through a representative constitutional form of government. This response will be quick. I think that in a social context, the only geographical area which is important is individual property. And that the right of agency comes from this and not from anything else. Uh, my question is if Mr. St. John, Mr. Rand, Mr. Peacock, and several other people own property uh, surrounding me or so on and so forth, and I, Rothbard, Tiny Hill, Walter Block, and several other people own property adjacent to this, can we delegate our right to self defense and retaliation to an agency which differs in personnel and possibly? It's, it's form as well, a different agency than uh, the objectivist way that people would. Do we have this rut? Why do we have to leave? Since the only more important is the individual's own property. This is, is, is my, my only question. Question from Mr. Child. Okay. I'll try. Now, seriously. 
I'm, I'm sure you do, and I mean it seriously too. If I didn't take it seriously, I wouldn't have written all the things that I've written. This land defines a government, and first of all, I don't even accept this definition as a legitimate definition, but she defines a government as an institution which holds the exclusive power, exclusive power to enforce certain rules of social conduct in a given geographical area. She says in her essay, The Nature of Government, that the concept of competing governments and so on and so forth is absurd, that uh, what I would call competing defense agencies cannot morally function. My question is this, if all rights are individual rights, including the rights of self-defense and retaliation, can I, who live next door to you, delegate my right to self-defense and retaliation to a different agency than you, or keep it myself? Or will the objectivists force me, force me, to give up this right to its agency? I see the contradiction is being that hold, that their agency will hold a monopoly and physical force, use only retaliation. Yet I maintain that it cannot keep this monopoly. Uh, if there is any dissent whatsoever, they cannot keep this monopoly except by initiating force against other individuals and agencies who don't like the specific agency that the objectivists are dealing with. I see this being the inherent contradiction. I do not see how it can be limited to retaliation at the same time, keep a coercive monopoly on police and judicial, judicial services. Uh, apropos to what you've said, it seems to me that uh, what when we talk about a limited constitutional government, we're also talking about an issue called referendums. We're talking about those individuals in response, uh, positions of responsibility to be accountable for their action, not only in terms of the, uh, the personal, but also in terms of the people that have delegated them this limited constitutional form of representative re uh, republic. And I think it's important to keep that in mind. That somehow, you know, uh, it seems the impression is at hand that somehow we're just going to be uh, one big bad policeman wielding a club. I think that by the nature of, of talking in terms of constitutional government, in terms of the of the checking of the of recognizing, as even Mr. Child does, the or at least the argument that is put forth by those who share Mr. Child's beliefs, that uh, the aggrandizement feature attributed to uh, to, to government. Another great many more questions. Unfortunately, our schedule has to be confined to somewhat. I think this has been a very, very important event. I'm glad we had two such excellent spokesmen for both positions because I think the issues are very important. I'd like to thank both of them for giving us the time.